Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. In closing, I try and do one thing that the jury is going to remember, something physical, because at that point in any trial, the jury's heard so many words, they just don't give a crap anymore. They're not going to remember the theme, really, unless you, you you keep it short and tight. They may remember a few witnesses, so I've always tried to do something physical. I mean, in... In Hall County, I demonstrated a slip and fall by actually falling on the floor. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. Again, I am uh, your host, Steve Lowry, here with the uh, always energetic Yvonne Godfrey. And uh, after having some uh, some uh, technical difficulties and Yvonne, I think breaking her microphone uh, or making it hang uh, hang like it's uh, yeah. uh, not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, I think we're good to go now. Yeah, I br- I broke it, and um, we're actually in the same <laughs> now. Now we are in the same building, but just two floors away. Just just to keep things interesting. Yeah, exactly. We 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 are. <laughs> uh, because of the technology we're using, we can't uh, actually be in the same room or, uh, 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 you know, look at each other or else something's going to go wrong. Or it's, or it's oh. an excuse. Taras and I set it up right. early so that I right. wouldn't have to be in the right. same room as you. Right, right, exactly. That <laughs> <laughs> was very elaborate. <laughs> huh. All right. Well, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited about the case we got to talk about. Um, so, uh, so let me ask you, Yvonne, the, imagine this, that uh, you are trying to bury your husband who served his uh, country proudly uh, and, and passed away and are on your way to uh, Washington, D.C. And then during that trip, stop at a hotel because it's a long trip. And at that hotel, you are, well, I don't want to say you, but the, the person is uh brutally attacked sexually assaulted and um and raped and then when you try to tell any of the locals about it try to tell any of the police nobody seems to believe you what what are your thoughts about that Yvonne? i mean it's horrifying it's it's your worst nightmare because i feel like it's already hard enough to those are if if you go through something that horrible i am i have to imagine that it's already so hard to talk about, but then to actually, um, you know, to actually do that and then uh, have people not believe you or accuse you of lying has got to be, I can't imagine. Right. And uh, I mean, it, it, you know, it, I'm sure not only is it, it putting salt in the wound, but it, um, you know, makes the, the, the person start doubting themselves about whether or not what they're telling is, is accurate just because nobody seems to believe them. But, uh, but our guest today is, uh, is somebody who did believe this lady and uh, was courageous enough to take on this case in a small Georgia county where everybody knows everybody and, um, and where the defendant in the case was a very a uh, well-known and well-liked restaurant and motel uh, owned by a local owner. And he successfully pursued that case and got a, got a great result. Um, so without further ado, our, our guest today is Chris Stewart. 
Chris is the managing partner of the Stuart Shea and Felton firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And Chris has uh, done some, some tremendous work in the past. Uh, not only has he won numerous awards for his representation of clients who've been uh, assaulted or uh, sexually assaulted or uh, been attacked by the police uh, all across the nation. In 2016, he was chosen as the attorney of the year for the state of Georgia. Um, and he has uh, done fantastic work. And Chris, we're very, uh, very happy to have you on today. Oh, yeah, man. I, I really appreciate the invite. Well, Chris, I, I, I know that, um, you know, we just sort of gave a quick overview of the case. And by the way, the, the name of the case is Radke versus Safe Investments LLC, uh, doing business as the Western Motel. And the case was tried in 2013 in Camden County, Georgia, uh, which is right at the southern, uh, uh, the southeastern part of Georgia, right before you get into Florida. Uh, and as I said, is a, a very small rural conservative county and um and made for a a difficult place uh, to say the least for for chris for you to try this case Is that fair to say it was a uh like something from one of the uh old movies you know <laughs> like um to, to kill a mockingbird or it was literally that type of um that type of scene yeah, and I, and I got to imagine, and we'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit more of a setup on the case, but uh, I got to imagine that just even picking a jury in a, in a, in a um, county uh, where basically everybody knew each other and everybody knew the owner of this uh, motel and, and everybody would go and eat at the restaurant at this motel uh, had to be extremely difficult. Uh, how, how, um, how did you approach you know, picking the jury in this case, Chris? I mean, that was one of the extremely tough parts of the case was, you know, normally when you ask uh, the panel, do they know the defendant? You may get one person, maybe two at most, but, you know, that would still be rare unless it's a celebrity defendant or something. <clears throat> we had the entire panel hold up their hand, um, an entire, I mean, everyone. <laughs> um, so at that point, we couldn't really, you know, strike the panel because the population isn't large enough for us to bring in a whole one and sure we would have got the same result then it became questioning by myself and the judge on just how well do you know him um which is not what you want to be picking from people that know him and are uh friends with him when you're asking questions like well how good of friends that's never a good thing Right, right, exactly. So uh, I've actually been in this situation before, uh, Chris, and uh, I know how it is to be the, the one guy in the courtroom uh, who doesn't know, and you know, everybody knows everybody, except nobody knows who you are. Is that, was that your experience too down in Camden County, that you were the, the lone person there that, that nobody else knew, you and your client? Oh, yeah. And of course, I was the uh, lawyer from Atlanta, uh, which was my my uh, title given to me or referred to me a few times uh, just to remind people that I'm, I'm an outsider. Um, right. And, you know, if they didn't know the owner, then they knew the manager of the hotel. And if they didn't know the manager, then they knew, you know, the front desk worker. So, I mean, it was just, it, it was not, 
not looking good. And were you able to get many strikes for cause in that instance, or how, how was the how was that uh, going about in in that case? No, the only ones we that we were able to get, you know, for cause were, were the people that were just clearly um, said that they could not be swayed, no matter what they heard, because of their relationship with either the owner or manager or uh, the manager's son, who was also a sheriff. <laughs> so, oh my gosh um you know um some people just said no matter what they heard they wouldn't change their mind period wow and so we were able to get rid of those but you know the biggest fear is who's not saying anything or who's lying and i was scared one of his really good friends would just sit there and act like they weren't good friends and get on right right they try to stay yeah. on the jury and help him out yeah yeah, that's always a concern. So um, let me give a little bit more background to this case, uh, Chris, and then, we, and then you can kind of walk us through it. So this case involves Margaret Radke, uh, who is 64 years old. This is back in April of 2009. And she was driving from Florida up to Washington, D.C. And her husband, uh, Colonel Jack Radke, uh, had passed away. They had been married for 37 years. And she was taking his ashes up to Washington, D.C. to bury him in Washington. Uh, and while she was on the way, she stopped at this motel called the Western Motel, which is right there in, in Kingsland, Georgia, um, right over the border from Florida. And, um, and while she was there, uh, she had, I think, you know, had dinner there, gone to the bar there, had some drinks there, uh, had talked to, a, um, you know, a couple of gentlemen there, and uh, then retired to her room. And um, after she was in her room, a man came in and proceeded to forcibly uh, rape her. And that was essentially the case. Is that right, Chris? Yep, that was it. And so, you know, from in reading some of the, the materials on this, Chris, I some of the things that I found particularly tough were, and, and you can talk about the, the various challenges in this case. We already know that you're in a, you know, small conservative county where everybody knows the, the uh, owner, the manager, the manager's son is a sheriff. I, I didn't realize that. Uh, and then um, there was some video of, uh, of your client actually talking to the man who had, had raped her. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, they had video surveillance in the bar restaurant, and uh, after my client unpacked, she went and sat at the bar um, and, you know, stayed there for a few hours talking to the bartender and drinking, and maybe after the first hour, that's when you see the assailant come in, uh, sit next to her, and, um, you know, start talking to her, and they sat there, you know, drinking and kind of talking for a while. Um, I also had found video surveillance of, you know, when she was checking in, he was in line next to her. Um, and in my opinion, I think that that's where it all began because he was listening to her, you know, say that she was on the road and just stopping there. Her husband had passed, you know, she was having a conversation with the desk clerk and you could kind of see from his body language, he was listening. And then you see him, you know, kind of make a joke and everybody started laughing. 
Um, so that's where I started with my theme of, you know, she, she started being stalked. Right. And so, and, and if, if I understand right, Chris, and we'll get into some more of the facts of the case, but if I understand right, um, the police actually uh, interviewed the assailant and then let him go. And then was that the last that was ever seen of him? Yeah, he skipped town after that. Um, he was at the hotel uh, for, you know, he said a barbecue because his brother who was in the military was there for this big military barbecue event thing. So, you know, that was, that's what he was telling the officers he was there for. I mean, and in his interview, of course, he's just saying, Oh, I wouldn't do that with, you know, that old lady. And, you know, he, he was, he was, I thought just crazy sounding in his interview, but they let him go. Oh my God. Wow. And, and, you know, and that makes me think, you know, when it, you, you know, oftentimes I think about these cases that, that you know, we try and it's um, when a case, you know, when somebody first walks in the door and tells you their story of what happened to them, um, you know, if the police had, had interviewed him and then decided that there was, I guess, no crime and then released him, that's got to be a difficult case to, um, to, you know, sort of wrap your arms around and, and to decide to take. What, 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 uh, what about the case uh, brought you to it, Chris? I mean, what... What made you decide to take on, on this case? You know, with the sexual assault cases, I, I, I have to get them to the office and just sit down and talk to them. Um, because when I first saw the email about the case, I hated it. Because all I saw was, you know, it, it said that she was intoxicated, uh, which I know is always going to be a difficulty. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but that's going to be a difficulty litigating it. Um, I knew that there were some inconsistent statements to the police. I knew the assailant was never arrested. And then I saw the county and I was just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> what is, you know, what's going to get worse with this situation? Um, I, at that point, I didn't know there was video of them at the bar um, talking, but um, it just, it was just not great facts. But when I met her um, and she told me, you know, about her husband and, you know, how he was one of the most decorated, you know, Marines ever and just all that kind of stuff. And that his ashes were actually in the room. But that's what I knew that she didn't allow that man in the room. There's no way that that, you know, elderly woman was going to let this guy in her room to have sex with her, with her husband's ashes sitting right there. And I, I just knew yeah. um, that she wasn't lying. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. 
they're they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I, and I did read uh, your closing. One of the things I thought that you, you know, you know, did particularly well, and I should say, I, I didn't even start up uh, correctly. This case resulted in a $1.5 million verdict, which to some people may not sound like the, the, the biggest verdict, but in this county, uh, that's a record verdict. And nobody had gotten a million dollar verdicts down in Camden County. And to get this against somebody who was so well known and so popular uh, is just uh, tremendous work. Um, but yeah, one of the things I saw in your in your closing was was basically laying out that, you know, if, in order for the defense to be correct, because what the defense was arguing in this case is that this was consensual sex and that, that uh, you know, and maybe it was consensual rough sex, but it was still consensual. And um, you laid out in order for that to be true, then she had to have this plan that while she was, you know, driving her husband to be buried, uh, you know, she was going to have sex and then decide to you know tell everybody about it expose yourself and then tell the police about it and, and you know say that somebody had raped her and and you know and come and concoct some sort of a lawsuit out of it that would ha have to be what you uh, believed in order to believe what the defense was saying and i thought that was uh you know just a, a great point yeah that you know that was i really had to rely on that part because you know like i said i had some couple tough characters on the uh, jury, um, I'd say probably 80% of my jury had on overalls every day, you know, because it's a very rural community. And I had a couple guys that, you know, would roll their eyes when they would hear that she was two and a half, three times the limit. Um, and just a couple other little things where they would give me the look of, you know, this is BS. Um, right. But when I kind of said that, I made sure I was looking directly at those two guys. And even they kind of had to look away or look down because they knew, you know, I mean, that that's the insane person who would, you know, have sex with somebody with the with their ashes of their husband who they had been married to for 50, 60 plus years right there in the room, you know. So, yeah, I don't I think I, I think that was just a, a fact that they couldn't get over, plus the fact that this wasn't planned. I mean, she got a ticket for speeding and, and had to stop at that motel. Okay. I didn't realize that. So, so the reason why she stopped there is because she had gotten a ticket and, uh, and, and decided she needed to stay off the road for a little bit. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was just going to go, you know, ride all the way up through, uh, through Georgia. She definitely wasn't going to try and stay in a small town, you know? Um, she got a speeding ticket, and when she got a speeding ticket, she was like, you know what, maybe I just need to stop at the first hotel I see, sleep for a night, and calm down. Um, wow. So the, uh, what I, I sort of buried the, uh, the, the, um, the lead in this case, Chris, because I haven't even talked about the fact that what the defendants did in this case and why this case was successful was that the, the I think this was on video and tell me if I'm wrong, but 
that this man had walked up to the front desk, said that he had lost his key to her room, and then they gave him a new key uh, to her room without asking for any type of identification or proof that he was with her or anything like that. And, and uh, I believe that, you know, when, it, when you boil it down, that that's sort of a, something very simple that everybody can understand is you just don't give out a key to somebody's room to just anybody. But that's, in fact, what they had done in this case. Yeah, that, that got very difficult because, of course, the assailant never got arrested and he skipped town. So I never was able to depose him. Right. So it was all based on the front desk worker who was very uncooperative um, during her deposition. Uh, and the one key code uh, reading that we had that showed that there was a key card that had been recoded for that room. Now, of course, the front desk worker, when she was deposed, she said, yes, I did recode a key for him, but he said it was for his brother's room. Um, and I don't remember what room it was, what, what room I recoded it for. Uh, but I had the videotape and a timeline which shows him coming down there, uh, not handing her a key to be recoded, um, but basically getting a key from her that she coded, if that makes sense. So I think he walked up to the desk, told her, I need a key for, you know, room 403, gave her 20 bucks. She didn't ask for ID. She recoded, uh, you know, a key card for him and just handed it to him. Got it. So the difference, the difference of somebody coming and being like, here's my key to my hotel room or whatever, it's not working versus not having a key at all or ID or any of that, obviously, and being like, hey, I need a card for this room. Yeah. And that's where the argument was just on who they're going to believe, because he hands her something. Um, we ended up arguing that it was 20 bucks. She says it was a key. Um, you know, and that was just a credibility issue with the jury. And she started lying about so many different things uh, that I think the jury just didn't believe her anymore. Right. Uh, she was she started just lying about silly stuff. You know, did you get fired? No, I quit on my own. Then the manager gets up there. Yeah, I fired her. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, just when we start lying about crazy stuff, it, it never looks yeah. good. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, she, 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 but she, you know, she did admit that even if it was recoding a key for him, you still must ask for ID, which is a hotel standard, industry standard. You have to ask people for ID. I mean, when I travel for a case and I go downstairs, even though they may know me, they will still say, you need to show me your ID again. Right. No, yeah. I've I've been at places where I didn't have my ID on me. And so they have a security guard, you know, walk you up there, unlock your door, and then you show them your ID. And then they, you know, will give you the key. Um, yep. Yeah. So to just give out a, a uh, card key that without ID or without any sort of verification of, that he was actually staying in that room uh, is just got to be unheard. Well, I mean, not only that, but I also think I, I have thought about that, about somebody else getting a key to my room before, you know, because of cases like this that you hear about, but I don't think I've ever really worried too much about when I was checking in as far as 
you know, how loudly, like I say my name, or if, you know, when you check in, if they tell you what your room number is, think, and if there's anybody else around, you know, if there's somebody in line behind me or next to me, who's maybe staying at the hotel or maybe pretending to stay at the hotel. Like, I don't think I've ever even thought of that before, but it, it would certainly make sense. It sounds like Chris, the, the, the sort of narrative that y'all put together is that that's when it started. I mean, that's just horrifying. I don't even think I have my guard up at that point. Yeah. I mean, and that's the danger. I mean, he's clearly in line, you know, listening to her conversation with the front desk worker. I mean, clearly you can see his, you know, he kind of keeps sneaking glances over there and kind of waiting for his moment. Then all of a sudden he cracks the joke and, you know, all three of them kind of laugh and my, my client leaves, goes to her room. And then, you know, that's where he sees her in the bar later, comes over and sits down. Right. You know, I also had testimony from the bartender that, you know, said they were not flirting with each other. You know, they were talking about the military and she was talking about her husband. And, you know, of course, she was laughing and being polite, but she said it was not anything sexual or flirty. Uh, so the bartender was my saving grace. Yeah, I was just about to get into that, that, you know, from what, what I could tell, the way they defended this case was to say that, you know, obviously that this was consensual, but that the, on the video that it looked like they were talking, they're being friendly, maybe even flirting with each other. And then when they left the bar, it looked like they left together. And so their whole uh, theme for the defense was to say, you know, this is just two consensual, you know, people going and, uh, and having sex. So it was, yeah. the bar, it was the bartender that helped you out on that? Oh yeah, she was, she was my star witness um, because the bartender even testified that when they left the uh, bar together, because um, you know, it, it's still a small town and it was unusual as one of the witnesses told me for a black guy to be sitting there with some older white lady. Um, and you can see here in the video, some of the patrons kind of, you know, glancing over there a little bit. Um, so when they walked out at the same time, I think that that was just a little bit too much for the bartender. Uh, so she actually testified, she walked up to the front desk worker um, to check on uh, my client. Oh, wow. And the, front, and the front desk worker said, oh, no, she's fine. Um, and she asked her, you know, about the room situation. But, of course, you know, by that time, the front desk worker had skipped town. So we weren't able to follow up on that. Got it. And was I, so I was reading the, um, the pretrial order, and it sounded like, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, because just reading that, it sounded like one of their defenses was going to be that, even if, even if they had coded this, the key for that room and given it to this guy, that, it, that basically it, causation-wise it didn't matter because she, she was going to let him in the room anyway? Yeah, because the assailant told the police that, yes, he was in her room, but that she had invited him uh, in the room and that the only thing he did was give her a massage um, and that, you know, she gave him a hundred bucks and, you know, but he did give her a massage, but, you know, nothing else happened. 
because I, I think he was smart enough to know he couldn't deny being in the room. Right. Um, so he did admit that, which, you know, is what the defense used of, you know, he was in the room. Okay. Uh, my client was firm that, you know, she was never in the room until the assault happened. Um, but, you know, he was saying that he was in the room to, you know, to give her a massage, allegedly. Right. Right. Well, because if he's smart, yeah, he doesn't know if there are cameras or maybe he does, but. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't know what they have. Yeah. On. Golly. But so the, um, I mean, if he was saying that, that he had ne- uh, just gone there to give her a massage, th- did she have a, a rape kit performed on her or any, any sort of exam? Yeah, uh, she did go to the hospital uh, after she called 911. Um, you know, she waited uh, a few hours, maybe four, three or four hours after the assault. But that's common in a sexual assault, you know, and that's always something that we always end up having to explain or defend because, you know, most rape victims, I mean, I've had some people wait weeks, you know, even months sometimes because of the trauma of it um, or they're scared or they just don't know what to do. Um, Or they're in shock. Yeah. Yeah. And they're shocked. And she waited a few hours and then she finally called 911. So she did get a rape kit done, which showed, you know, vaginal tearing and bruising. Um, you know, so we had that. They they found a trace amount uh, of semen. Um, but, you know, police still didn't pros- uh, press any charges um, because, like I said, it was the argument the defense used of, okay, that's fine. You know, there was bruising and tearing, but if a 75-year-old woman has sex, that would happen. It's horrifying. So, So, you know, they they used the rape kit almost in a way against me, uh, saying, you know, this isn't a case where, okay, if there was bruising or tearing, now the plaintiff has a case because it was a rape. This is one where because of her age, there's bruising and tearing. And how how could they respond to the, you know, what you were bringing out about like, why would anybody, why would anybody choose to do that to themselves? I mean, putting, you know, the grieving of her husband and everything aside, why would somebody choose to have consensual sex and then call 911 and go to the hospital and go to the police Well, that's where they just kind of left that, you know, they they didn't want to push it too, too far and offend the jury, but they just kind of left it out there, you know, when people are grieving, uh, they go through Uh things, they do irrational things, and they, you know, they hammered the alcohol thing, you know, saying people do crazy stuff when they're drunk, and she was drunk out of her mind, they were saying. Gotcha. Um, So grief plus, you know, too much alcohol can lead to bad decisions. So I think, you know, they just kind of went that route without, without calling her a pervert. Right. Right. Just one night of a bad decision. And, and maybe she, I, I guess the argument from their standpoint would be that she started to regret it later on. And then that's when she decided to make the call to the, uh, to the police or to 911 because of based out of regret, not out of not giving consent at the time. Yeah. 
Yeah. So one one of the things you mentioned, Chris, um, there was another sort of obstacle in the case was that when she had first talked to the police, she had given some inconsistent statements. What uh, tell us about the statements, and then tell us, you know, how you uh, how you sought to overcome those. Yeah, you know, when she gave her first statement, you know, you have to understand she was still kind of under the influence of alcohol um, because, you know, she was still a little tipsy at that point. Um, so some of the, the things she said, I think if she hadn't uh, had any alcohol at that point, would have been clearer. Um, but, you know, she just made a couple small comments that uh, the defense tried to twist. Uh, she at one point when they were asking what did he look like, she called him a trap, like, you know, he's an attractive guy. So of course they had that highlighted on their exhibits. Um, she was confused because she didn't know how to, when she first came to the hotel, she didn't know how to work the room key. Um, and some of the Navy personnel were walking by and one of them was African-American and they showed her how to use the room key. So, you know, the defense tried to twist that around of saying, well, you know, she said there was a black guy in the room when she first arrived and she said there was one later. And, you know, so it was just a couple innocent mistakes that wouldn't matter unless it was a lawsuit going. Right. Right. Um, you know, then one of the uh, uh, later comments was she said that she you know, gave him a hundred bucks, but, you know, what they had left out was he basically robbed her. Like after he raped her, he took a hundred bucks from her. Right. So, you know, he went in a purse and he took a hundred bucks out. Um, but that the way they were phrasing it and twisting it, it made it seem like she, you know, she paid him a hundred bucks, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't what she stated. Right. What she stated was she basically got robbed. Oh, right, that makes right. me so mad. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, when it's just a piece of paper sitting there, uh, it depends on who wants to read it to make it sound good or bad. Right. No, that's exactly right. Be- what about, what was your jury like in terms of, um, you know, men and women and age and that kind of thing? Do you remember? I believe we had... I think maybe seven men, all white, uh, four white females, and one old, old, old African American male. Gotcha. Who I don't, I don't think uttered one word through the right. whole thing. Yeah. Of questioning. Yeah. Because I just feel like for, I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I, ugh. I mean, that's it's a whole another bigger conversation. But just as a, as a, as a woman, a story like this, it just has it's just like horror upon horror, like so many levels of just like horrifying. <laughs> yeah, and it was you know her sons did a good job also because I flew them in and they um. You know, they testified about how she was the next day because, of course, you know, she couldn't stay down there while the investigation happened. She had to drive the ashes up, you know, to Arlington Cemetery. 
And, you know, they testified how at the military parade that was held for her husband, um, you know, she literally was just out of it. You know, she just handed his ashes to them and didn't say anything, didn't want to participate in the parade and, you know, was just kind of out of it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that helped. Um, you know, I also think that, you know, Camden is uh, near a very large naval base. So, you know, we had a couple people on there who had military experience. Um, so they understood how, um, you know, serious of an event that is a military funeral and how high ranking her husband was to, you know, be getting a military funeral. Right. I mean, a military parade. So, right. um, you know, it was, you know, that kind of softened it up um, for her. Yeah. Because the, the sun, the sun was, was phenomenal. Um, yeah, tell us, uh, Chris, uh, you and I talked a little bit beforehand and, um, and you tell us about, you know, how, uh, your client did, how, how it went about preparing her to take the stand, knowing that she was going to be questioned about things as personal as, as sex and, uh, you know, and about, you know, how much she had been drinking and whether or not this was consensual. I mean, tell us about how you go about preparing your, your client for that and how she, uh, how she did on the stand. Yeah, that was the tough part. You know, getting that's always my biggest uphill battle is is getting my clients who've been victims of sexual assault to um testify or sh to even do a deposition. I mean, it's it's a really 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 tough thing um to get someone to agree to to relive that. Um and it's you know, it's very tricky uh because you don't want to cause any more mental scarring um right. i'm ex you know i can you know i will let the defense try and figure out what they need to figure out during a deposition but you know once they begin crossing the line that's where uh the deposition will become extremely confrontational between myself and the defense right, right. um where, where when i know they're just trying to push them um so it was the same thing with her cross. I mean, it got a little heated uh, between defense and her and myself and, you know, everybody. Right. Uh, because there, you know, there's some questions I'm going to allow and stand for. Then there's some that it may be a legal question, but, you know, I know what you're doing and you're not going to just do that, you know. So um, she took a beating on uh, the alcohol topic. Uh, they really got her on that. Uh, but the incident itself, I mean, she stood firm on, you know, just, you know, I, I like what I, I think she recall her saying, you know, they keep on, you know, questioning her, questioning her. And she just finally says, why would I wait 55 years to finally cheat on my husband? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was just, you know, you heard a couple giggles from the, uh, from the jury finally because she was just like I just don't understand why would you know why would I pick this random county and wait 55 years you know I've been carrying her husband had been dying of cancer you know so she was like I haven't even had sex in 30 years so why would I break that now you know in this way God. right 
Yeah, that's so, got to be such a difficult thing to get your client uh, ready for something like that because you know that they're just going to get into such personal questions. And, um, you know, it, and, and I imagine uh, that you've had clients before that uh, once you tell them that they have to, you know, take the stand or that they have to give a deposition, that they might tell you at that point that they just don't want to go forward with the case anymore. Do they ever, has that ever happened to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got one right now. I mean, we had depositions last week, but, you know, and it's a very extremely serious case. I mean, uh, great case, but the victim is a teenager and, you know, the mother was done and they were just like, they <laughs> they were done. Um, so we thought they were gone and then they had a change of heart and came back and, you know, finally we went forward depositions. But I mean, you know, that's the risk is, at any point, the client could just say, I'm, I quit, you know, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, it um, takes a tremendous, you know, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, it takes a tremendous just, amount of courage to do, to go forward with the case like this. Yeah, because it gets tricky because with them, it's, with the sexual assault cases, it's not, it, it's not really about money, if that makes sense, because, you know, a trucking case or something like that, or, I mean, shoot, we've had some cases together, a shooting case, you know, money will, that matters for a family because it can help with physical therapy or treatment or, right. you know, doing something in, you know, their child's honor that was killed. But in this situation, I mean, uh, sexual assaults are being great. Money doesn't really fix it exactly. Um, so it, you know, you've got to kind of have more of a, uh, motivation for the client than just oh we could possibly go get a big settlement or a verdict and right. that's tough finding that you know that what that thing is for a lot of the victims right right well right. And i was thinking about it like well this is a chance to you know if there were no criminal charges to make to hold this assailant responsible but really it's not even the assailant i mean it's still a responsible party obviously and that's what the jury concluded but um, it's really kind of, I guess, the only sort of legal process that she was able to pursue. Yeah, and that was exactly it. That's what gave her the kind of strength to put up with this um, was, number one, you know, she was really hurt that they didn't charge the guy or really even bring him in again for questioning. Right. Um, you know, so she was hurt by that. And then, you know, what I told her is, you know, a verdict is going to matter, but you know, hotels are going to be watching this. And if we do get a win, then it'll strengthen the policies regarding key cards, right. you know, in the industry and locally. Um, and she liked that because, you know, I mean, it's, they gave the room key away. I was like, well, that could happen to anyone yeah. or man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other part of it is I've had a couple of cases where like yours, where the client, you know, wasn't believed or they were blamed by the other side. And it's just to sort of have that vindication that you told your story, you know, a, a, you know, 12 people who don't even know you heard it. And then they decided that you were right. And that just sort of gives you this vindication of, uh, you know, that you weren't lying and that, and that, um, and it, that can be sort of a, a part of the healing as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Chris, was there ever a, a a point during the trial where, you know, you could you could tell the jury was with you, or that or that they were with your client, or were you just not sure the whole time? 
Oh, no. I was, uh, uh, you know, I, I actually told Steve, I, I knew we lost. I mean, I just knew we lost up until closing. Um, it, they just weren't having it. You know, like I said, I, you could hear or see some of the uh, smirks or uh, different facial expressions when they would talk about the alcohol. And, um, you know, they, I don't think they were just with us, um, you know, for the trial. Um, I think it helped when the owner uh, lost his mind with me when he was being crossed um, and just showed how nasty he was and disrespectful and, you know, borderline seething with hate for me. Um, you can fill in, you can fill right. in the reason why. Right. Um, so uh, that I think the people that did know him and possibly liked him, they kind of distanced themselves maybe from him a little mentally or, or kind of uh, lost a little respect for him because he was over the top nasty with me. I mean, I would ask something and he, he would just respond and, and, you know, at the end say, we, you know, anything else uh, got another question for oh, me God. or, you know, yeah. just, you know, just that, that insane <laughs> uh, witness that we've all seen. <laughs> or asking me, am I done? Okay. Um, I think it sounded like he called me boy one time. Um, and, you know, we tried, I actually asked a clarification of what did he say? And he kind of like giggled or, or smirked. But oh my God. You know, I think he, I think he called me boy. He called me something. Um, it was just ridiculous. And I think the jury, because once I saw what he was doing, I kind of kept his cross going longer so that he would, you know, just beat me to death in front of them. Right. And and it kind of worked because uh, I finally started getting some sympathy from the jury yeah. uh, because they knew he was just being a jerk at that point. Um, so that, that helped, but no, I thought we, we had lost up until closing, um, you know, closing argument. Wow. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com.
Yeah, and that's something I want to talk about, Chris, and um, because you know we had talked before, and I know your client, uh, you know, had taken some heat during her uh, cross examination. Um, the owner hadn't done great, and that uh, was was one of the turning points for you. And then you said that the bartender, um, you know, was your star witness in that she supported your client's story. But uh, I've seen you talk about this case uh, once before. And you did something in closing that I've always thought was very creative. Tell tell us about um, you know what you did with the key cards during during your closing argument. Yeah, it's um well you know hey, I've got a rule in closing you have to <laughs> well my crazy self I try and do one thing that uh, the jury is going to remember something physical. Um, because at that point in any trial, the jury's heard so many words. They just don't give a crap anymore. Um, right. you know, they're not going to remember the theme really, unless you, you know, you keep it short and tight. Uh, they may remember a few witnesses. So I've always tried to do something physical. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure defense attorneys have their own listserv with the jokes about things I've done, uh, in closing, <laughs> you know. In in Hall County, I demonstrated a slip and fall by actually falling on the floor. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, I've uh, I've done a lot of crazy <laughs> stuff. But anyway, um, <laughs> this one uh, we were sitting up at about two in the morning, uh, licking our wounds, and you know the trial had just lost track. I mean, you know, from her getting beat up to the the manager going nuts and you know they were taking it away from the actual assault and you know just taking it in a in a different direction um and so i you know we were trying to think of ways to get it back to what the case was about the hotel giving out a key card mm-hmm. you know you know not even about the rape anymore just the hotel giving out a key card and how dangerous that is because they were able which is what roy did phenomenally to minimize the actual key card testimony and, you know, that fact that they admitted they gave it out to make that a tiny, tiny piece of the case, but it really being about was she raped or was she? Right. Right. You, you see, and, and I, I lose that trial every day of the week. So, you know, I needed to bring it back about the key card. Uh, so at 2 a.m., uh, I sent all of my staff out to all of the local hotels that they could in Florida where we were staying, we were staying right across the border um, to get as many old unused key cards as they could. And so in the morning during closing, um, I had a, geez, maybe a hundred key cards or 50. And I, uh, during closing, just started walking around in front of the jury, throwing, (laughs) throwing the key cards on the ground in front of me. And of course, they were looking at me like I was insane. And then once I, tr- I explained what I was doing and how dangerous it is to give away key cards, um, then I think a light bulb, I can literally see a few of the people in the front kind of smile or nod their head. And then I was like, all right, well, looks like we may have a shot. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I mean, that's just a great use of demonstrative evidence and something that's just so simple. And sometimes it's the most simple things that work. But uh, but just bringing home that, you know, that point that, you know, this boils down to you don't ever want to go to a hotel and have them just give out a uh, a key card to just anybody. And 
to, and to just have that, you know, simple method of reinforcing it to them. Well, and there's that thing uh, that I'm sure you're, there's that thing that happens too. I think with people who, um, if it's, if you make it about the specific rape or the specific victim, I feel like people just mentally want to distance themselves because that's an easier way to go about it that not think thinking about how you would be different or something like this wouldn't happen to you or whatever. So to bring it back to the, uh, which isn't, you know, it isn't true, but I think it's just mentally a way that people kind of uh, deal with situations like that. So to bring it back to a more general policy, you know, that's not about your client or that this specific assailant, but just this general thing that could happen to everybody, everybody that should never happen. That was um, such yeah. a good idea. Yeah, right. and I think that it allowed the, uh, a lot of the people in the jury to personalize it because, of course, uh, though all plaintiff's lawyers will want to do it, we want to say this could happen to you, but then we would have the biggest mistrial in right. the world. Um, <laughs> it was kind of saying it without saying it even though I was talking about her as I was throwing them on the ground you know I threw out the first 12 right in front of the 12 jurors um right so they each you know they got what I was saying um you know without me saying it and without Roy being able to say that I was arguing improper. Right, right. Well, because that's the thing is, I mean, you can say, you can look at a situation like that and you could be like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't drink so much or I wouldn't drink so much by myself or I wouldn't talk to a stranger at the bar or whatever it is. But it's like, you can't say you wouldn't go to a hotel and get a key card because you, you have to. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Well, and yeah. yeah and it, and, uh, you, it, it goes back to primacy and reasoncy and talking about, you know, focusing on what the defendant did wrong instead of, you know, uh, the plaintiff's actions. Because, you know, as we all know that uh, if you put that first into what the plaintiff did, then the jury just, I mean, you know, any person starts thinking about, well, I would have done it differently. Right. And, um, and Devon's right. I mean, you know, the, you know, then, then people start focusing on the drinking, then talking to strangers. And then, you know, instead of focusing on, you know, just the key card. You just don't, you just don't do that. Don't give out a key card to somebody you don't know is staying in that room. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the only thing that they just could not get around. You know, they, they had already admitted, I mean, in the depositions that, you know, she should not have given out that key, even to Miss Radicke herself without checking ID again. Um, so that they knew that was their weakness, but they, had so many great other little facts that they could cloud the case up with, right. um, that they had minimized it almost to the point of, I mean, we, we had almost forgot about the key card. This was now a, a battle over, was she raped? Was this some sick, twisted, you know, uh, incident that she had been warning? I mean, it was just, the case had become about everything in the world, um, you know, but the key card. Um, you know, which is what it was just tough, a very, very tough situation. I mean, there were unspoken racial tones, you know, throughout the trial, um, which was something else that was had to be handled delicately. Um, you know, because the owner had made some racial comments about uh, the rapist who was black um, and my client, who was an elderly white woman. And of course, you know, we're in Camden County. Um, right. 
so that was a very touchy topic also. Yeah, and, and Chris, you, you and I talked a little bit about that, and I know it can be a difficult subject, but I mean, race is, uh, you know, something that is obviously important and, and plays into it. Uh, tell us about your approach to, I mean, you're in a rural county that's, you know, predominantly white, you know, you're an African-American trial lawyer. Uh, you know, how do you face this, uh, you know, this thing that you know is hanging out there? Is it something that you try to stay away from or do you go directly at it? Oh, no. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a lunatic. So I, <laughs> I bring it up before everything. I mean, I've, <laughs> yeah, I've done some stuff. Um, <laughs> right. You know, right. if, if you're going to be a traveler in Georgia, you're going to end up in rural counties a lot. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I have one in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, <laughs> the first thing that I told the jury was, well, I'm going to be the black guy walking around town for the next week or two. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> and, and they all started laughing. Um, you know, I've, I've asked people during, you know, voir dire, does anybody not like black people? I've had someone raise their hand before. Wow. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I, I take it on right away in a rural yeah. town because you've got to break that ice. Um, you know, I said something similar in this situation Did I asked, the jury did anybody have a problem with you know uh the rapist being black my client is a elderly white woman everybody else involved in this case is white uh town is predominantly almost all white and i'm a black guy representing her um so you know what they didn't understand i, I did that for two reasons a to break the ice and just get it out there and cut off any um undertones that the defense could have used more you know Roy's a respectable guy so he didn't really push right. it like some lawyers would have um but I also used that in closing you know saying you know I though we're me, me and her are so different uh I'm still fighting for um but no you've got to take that on I think you also if, if you're a female attorney um I, I go right at it because you yeah. might as well just get it out there Right, right. No, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think any, you know, you know, anything that can be something that's large hanging out there, it's best just to just to go straight at it, bring it up, and uh, and get people talking about it. And um, you know, and I imagine that when that juror, you know, said that they they you know did have problems with with black people, that you had to thank that person for their honesty because uh, you know you'd rather than be honest about it. Oh yeah, yeah, I. I you know, and and it, you know, you could kind of hear well, the judge gasped, um, and you could hear a pin drop, and the guy, I guess he realized what he had said. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I ended up making a joke out of it by saying, you know, light-skinned guys or dark-skinned guys. And, you know, so people kind of did the uncomfortable giggle, but I, I wanted to get him off the hook because he was honest, and I was extremely excited because he was now going to be off the jury without me using a strike. Right. Right. Um, so the judge immediately got rid of him, but uh, um, you know I, I I appreciate that kind of honesty, and I, you will be shocked, uh, especially in today's environment, how many people are more honest that way. You know, you you, you never know until you ask. Yeah. Did you handle it right. the same way in terms of your client not being from around there and you being an Atlanta lawyer? Did you um, 
handle that the same way with the jury as far as, you know, my cousin Vinny style being out of town from out of town and all that? Well, I think the defense, if I recall, had already beat me to that. I think I'd already been called the Atlanta lawyer by then. <laughs> um, so uh, that was that one was already yeah. out there. Uh, you know, so that was something I think they, they, of course, capitalized on was, you know, I'm from out of town and she was from Florida. So, you know, she was a she was an out of town or because I feel like sometimes we've had I know we've had cases like that we've tried in Savannah and um you know, somebody will, will will come down from an Atlanta firm, but then they'll they'll be putting a big emphasis on their making office or, you know, somewhere else, somewhere that's right. not Atlanta. Well, I, I, exactly. I have I have to admit that uh, I had a case here in Savannah and involved a uh, involved a, a railroad worker. And, and so I pointed out that the defense firm was, you know, had traveled all the way down from Atlanta. And so then the, during, during their portion of the, of the voir dire, they made sure to get up and say, you know, now Mr. Lowry didn't tell you that he also has an office up in Atlanta, right? So, <laughs> so they, exactly. tried, they tried to get back to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah. one of the other things I want to talk to you about, Chris, in, in this case is, you know, um, in sexual assault cases and, and, you know, I mean, we know that there's a tremendous amount of emotional uh, damage and, 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 you know, that they go through. But, you know, as far as, uh, you know, what you can write up on the board, as far as medical expenses and things like that, that's fairly low. If I, if I saw correctly, it looked like there was only about $2,000 in medical expenses. So how did you approach asking the jury or did you ask the jury for a specific amount of money uh, you know and how did you approach uh you know asking for for damages in this in this case when you you know don't have something where you can say you know right here is you know how much money this costs this lady you know i've never asked for um an amount when i've had a sexual assault case um you know i had that case with that five-year-old who you know, molested another five-year-old and same thing. I, I didn't even enter the bills, you know, the one right. uh, doctor checkup that they had because, you know, the bills were like 300 bucks or something. And, you know, that was kind of pointless. Um, but, you know, I just try and explain to them the damage uh, of sexual assault and, and what we value in society. It's kind of the same argument that I just used in, um, in the, uh, uh, Cheston case that I trial that I just had of you know a lot of people were asking did I ask for you know that amount of money and I didn't you know what I tried to get the jury to understand is different things that we value in society and you know why don't we value sexual assault that way right and just so we can be clear I meant to bring this up when I was introducing you Chris the uh, the Cheston case uh, that that you tried earlier this year up in Clayton County. Uh, in, that was a rape of a 14-year-old by a security guard uh, was a $1 billion verdict. So uh, that is um, a, an amazing result and a tremendous result, obviously. Um, yeah, now just chasing them down for it. Right, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, it's the, you know, that's the thing, because I think you can – it gets tricky because I, look, I always try and interview the jurors afterwards. And, you know, I talk to this jury afterwards. I will stand outside no matter how long it takes and, right. you know, convince them to talk to me. And I've actually had some jurors 
you know, when I used to say a number before, th who thought it was too low. So, you know, if I said, oh, this rate is worth five million, I've now taken away six people who probably thought it was 50. Right. right. You know, and, and so you can you can undercut yourself by saying a low number. Um, but I don't think you can hurt yourself by saying a number that's too high as long as you can make it relevant. Right, right. So but you, you can hurt you, yourself saying too low. Right. Oh, absolutely. So and when you did interview the jurors, what did you uh, find out? Was there anything surprising from that? Uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of hilarious also. A couple, <laughs> couple of the guys, they, uh, you know, which just goes to show you the depending on the venue, depending on the people. Um, I mean, two of the guys who were talking to me, they just thought that, you know, awarding $1 million was like, you know, end of the world, phenomenal. She'll never have to work again in her life. Um, you know, the biggest number ever. And I was, you know, it was, it was interesting uh, to hear. So I'm glad I didn't say too high of a number because they would have, uh, in that situation, one million was like, you know, they were really proud. Right. right. You know, they, they were really, really proud of, you know, doing 1.5. Um, and, uh, you know, they, at the end of the day, the consensus was just really, they didn't like how many times the front desk worker lied. Um, and they started growing suspicious of her because she just kept lying about silly stuff. And they were saying, when you lie about silly stuff, you know, then something may have happened. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that ended up being a, a key thing for them. Um, so, you know, that was, that was really it, but they were very, they were very proud of, uh, trying to set a record, you know, now that's one thing, which I leave up to them to interpret always as the jurors, you know, set a record with their verdict. Of course, right. They have no idea what that means. <laughs> right, right, right. But of course, you know, they had never heard of any million dollar verdict in Camden. So, you know, they assumed that was a record. <laughs> <laughs> right. Got it. So one other thing, Chris, you know, in any of these, uh, you know, security cases or assault cases, you know, we always have to talk about the issue of apportionment, which we, you know, have to deal with here in Georgia. Uh, that, you know, the defense is going to try and apportion uh, a large amount to the assailant. And um, in this case, did they, did the jury end up apportioning it, uh, any of the verdict to the assailant? And how did you, what, what was your uh, method in going about keeping the jury focused on what the motel did as opposed to, you know, the, the, what the assailant did? Yeah, I think they I think they did 30 or 35. I can't really remember. Um, but, you know, we it was just a fight for a lot to try and keep it on the uh, hotel because, of course, they wanted to put it on the sailing. But they also had a problem because they couldn't play it both ways. Right. You know, they were, you know, I think one of the witnesses blurted it out on the stand that the assailant was never even arrested or something because I remember I, I had a potential for a mistrial. Um, somebody blurted. I know the jury was very aware of that somehow. Um, no, one of the detectives tried to screw me over and said it. 
even though they weren't supposed to, now that I remember. Um, right. So they were aware of that, but they were, you know, the defense's point was that he didn't do anything wrong. You know, this was consensual and, you know, this, this wasn't a rape. So you couldn't really ride it too hard on asking for all of it to be on him when you just told this jury for a whole week the guy didn't do anything wrong. He was invited right. to the rooms. Um, so that was kind of where Roy and I were battling back and forth because I'll tell them you can't have it both ways telling them a portion fault to someone you said didn't do anything. Right. Right. Um, right. I remember I actually think I tried to fight getting him on the verdict form over that. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being the basis of emotion. I mean, if they're going to argue that, uh, that he's not, a, you know, didn't do anything wrong, then how, what's their argument for apportioning any fault to him? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's where, once again, they were, they were, they had it both ways of, well, Your Honor, you know, we're not saying he didn't do anything wrong, but we're not saying he did do anything wrong. You know, it, it was, <laughs> right. you know, it was one of those uh, having it both ways. And I think, matter of fact, I do actually remember, I think, because the judge was phenomenal. Um, I think the judge actually said that, that they would leave him off. But we were very, uh, worried yeah that that was going to be an appealable issue yeah um and i know i called a couple of our friends in gtla and spoke to them about it and they also agreed that that was a big big risk i would take by keeping him off the verdict form right yeah and i know that we've we've come to a similar conclusion in some of our recent cases where there's just not a lot of law yet on the burden of proof that a defendant has as far as, um, you know, allocating, asking a jury to allocate fault to non-parties and taking these inconsistent positions that nothing bad happened, but, but yes, something bad happened and it was all this person's fault. And, um, but yeah, that's the risk that you run if you try to take this, if you try to make new law in your case and your trial, and then you win, you, you, you have that vulnerability on appeal. Yeah, yeah, and that was our problem because the, the that was a big issue, and I know that you know the defense would have definitely appealed um, if we left them off, and then we won because then they would have felt that that was the only reason that we won. Right. So that's why I didn't, you know, we didn't care about what it, what they apportioned at all because you know we knew that there was nothing for them to appeal at all, and you know we thought we had lost this case yeah. up until <laughs> right. <laughs> so. If they would have said 49%, I would have been happy. Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, Chris, uh, again, I mean, this was a, a tremendous uh, result and and I think just a great, uh, you know, case to talk about as far as, you know, going to a difficult county, you know, and encountering, you know, all kinds of problems, even things that don't get addressed necessarily in the courtroom. And uh, and you did a phenomenal job. And, uh, and we just want to say, you know, thank you again for, for speaking with us about it. And we, uh, we really appreciate it. Oh yeah, Dan. Thanks again. And, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get a good one again in the future. I know, I know we got one coming up soon. So, uh, uh, I hope so. All right, buddy. So, uh, thanks again, you guys. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And just let me tell everybody where you can find Chris again is at Stuart Shea and Felton and his website address is ssfjustice.com. 
and they're based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we really appreciate Chris. Um, so I think that's a wrap, Yvonne. That was that was good. Yep. Interesting case. Definitely. Yeah, crazy one. Crazy one. All right. Thank you, everybody. All right. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. And we only really want five-star reviews. Uh, you know, if, if you have something less than a five-star, don't feel like you have to rate yeah, or review us. We have, we have no integrity. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. Uh, she uh, is a... Uh, magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled um and this has been the great trials podcast and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again thank you for listening